This is the Yorkshire Voice Newscast, brought to you by Leeds Trinity University. This is Yorkshire Voice Newscast, where we take a closer look at the biggest stories across the region. I'm Chelsea Sewell, and I'll be joined this afternoon by our travel reporter, Noah Hoffman. On today's show, we'll be looking at why taxi drivers in Bradford will be striking this afternoon, how people in Bradford are feeling about the prospects of international travel opening, opening up from next month, as well as finding out why West Yorkshire Police have asked people not to speculate about the recent arrest made in Keithley. We've got all that and more coming up on Newscast. Private hire taxi drivers in Bradford are protesting this afternoon as Bradford City Council has said they want to introduce a clean air zone in the city from January. The charge would mean that taxis and private hire cars that do not meet an up-to-date emission standard would be charged £12.50 a day to enter the zone. The charge comes as the government ordered Bradford Council to reduce illegal levels of pollution in the district. Our reporter Martha Sanders spoke to Shabir, a taxi driver in the city, to find out what the charge will mean for him. Well, the thing is, first of all, they want you to change your vehicle to uh, a newer vehicle which will be low emissions. So that will cost about minimum of £10,000. So being COVID last year and no income at all, then all of a sudden throwing that on you, it's a bit of like a mismanagement and not planned properly. Um, so we'll now cross over to Martha, who's outside City Hall, where the protest is taking place. Hiya, Chelsea. Well, to be honest... Um not an awful lot. I think there's been a bit of confusion over this protest and there may even be another one which is maybe a bit more better organised on the 13th or 14th of May. So of the taxi drivers I've spoken to, um, some of them have been in favour and some of them have been against. So this um, this charge, the £12.50 charge you were talking about, it specifically covers private hire vehicles rather than the hackney carriages, for example, which are run by the council. So those hackney carriages, which are run by the council, some of them feel like Uber drivers and the other private hire vehicles um, get away with not um, paying their paying what they should be doing in terms of charges, and they just run, you know, they run themselves and they undercut the council ones. So in terms of the council-run cabs, they're actually um, some of them are against this strike. And it's been a bit of a mixed bag, um, which I think may account for why it is quite quiet here. However, there are police officers and there is a bit of a police presence. And there have been lots of taxi drivers going past, but it's hard to tell whether or not, um, you know, that they are making much commotion. Um, Yeah, that's the scene here in Bradford. Okay, thank you for that, Martha. Uh, And moving on, following five arrests in West Yorkshire, Wiltshire and North Wales by the counter-terrorism policing in the North East over the weekend, West Yorkshire police have urged people not to speculate about the arrests on social media. Police have said that speculation of any kind could negatively impact the investigation and any further prosecutions, and the police cannot identify those arrested. A house in Keithley was cordoned off and a number of residents were evacuated whilst there was an investigation into suspicious materials. The police have said that this is a pre-planned arrest and that it is believed there is not an immediate risk to the community. I spoke to John Wilson, a lecturer in media law at Leeds Trinity University, to find out how social media can negatively impact a court case. Is anything prejudicing a potential trial? And so what happens here is that we're in the territory of the Contempt of Court Act 1981. 
And what that says is that basically uh, nothing should be said that constitutes a substantial risk of serious prejudice to any proceedings active. And proceedings are basically active as soon as an arrest is made. So basically what the police are trying to do is to ensure that if this goes to a trial, that everybody gets a fair trial. Um, you know, people are innocent till proven guilty. And the danger is on social media is that people start to speculate, they start to talk about particular people. There's a danger that they might you know, um, mention things like previous convictions or say that they, you know, they, people are shady characters or that type of thing. And so, you know, there is a great danger that they could prejudice a trial by the comments that they make. And also, you know, potentially might be called as witnesses. You know, so if they put things out onto social media, you know, do they feel obliged to stick to that version of events? Um, so there's all sorts of things that can happen. So I can quite understand that people are saying to, you know, the police are saying to people, please don't put that could cause harm to a future trial. Yeah, and I suppose in this day and age compared to, say, even 10 years ago, it's such um, a bigger problem now that everyone's on social media. Um, you probably didn't have this problem so much, say, 20 years ago. No, it, it is very much the, the social media age. I mean, most journalists know what the rules say. You know, they have grounding in, you know, about the Contempt of Court Act. And, you know, and, and it's, you know, you have to say that, you know, if you breach the Contempt of Court Act, um, you're talking about potentially unlimited fines. You're talking about potential prison sentences. You know, this is taken very, very seriously. Um, but as you rightly say, you know, 20 years ago, this simply wasn't an issue. But the problem you have now is that you have people piling onto social media saying all sorts of things, some of which are highly prejudicial. You know, and there have been cases in the past where, you know, Crown Court trials have been stopped dead, you know, because of what people have said on social media. Um, you know, and, you know, the fact is that if you cause a trial to, you know, to be stopped, um, you are in serious trouble. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you've said how it could affect the trial. It could just completely get cancelled, rearranged, that sort of thing. Yeah, there have been cases where trials have been stopped. Um, yeah, and as I say, you know, there have been cases in the past, um, you know, where newspapers have actually fallen foul of this sort of thing as well, where people have been arrested and they've published material about suspects. And then it's turned out that the person who's been arrested has been innocent, has been discharged, has never gone to court, and their reputation is in ruins. Uh, and if it had gone to court, they basically trashed the reputation of a, the person appearing in court. And so yeah. the chance of having a fair trial is seriously prejudiced. Yeah, because I remember the case, was it the Christopher Jeffries case, where he got completely um, torn apart across all the newspapers and then it weren't even him that had committed the crime? Yeah, that, that's a famous case of recent times, the Christopher Jeffries case. I mean, basically, you know, he was arrested um, in connection with the Joe Yates case, a completely innocent man. Uh, unfortunately, both the, the Daily Mirror and the, the Sun had run, you know, 
front page pieces about him um, which were extremely damaging uh, and they were fined under contempt of court act and of course there was also defamation actions against them as well uh, so you know by publishing material like this you know it was always the newspapers who ran that particular danger social media makes everybody a publisher you know and, and people shouldn't underestimate the fact that you know tweets and you know posts on facebook can be exceptionally damaging um and can as i say can interfere with legal proceedings so you know i'm not surprised that the people you know the, the police want people to tread very carefully yeah and there was also the recent sarah everard case could the defendant the policeman have argued that he didn't get a fair trial due to the social media attention he got uh, well, I mean, basically, that's a case that's on, you know, that, that's ongoing. Um, so once people have been arrested and police have said that they are arrested, uh, you are safe to report that particular fact. What you then have to avoid is sort of speculation surrounding, you know, that particular person. Um, so, you know, in, in any particular case, if if material is then circulated about a particular person, um, you know, anything that suggests guilt, anything that says they're a bad character, anything that says they might have previous convictions, all of this is potentially highly dangerous. Um, so, you know, people do need to act responsibly and, and take great care with their social media postings. So yeah, that was a very interesting interview with John. Um, but now on to travel. Uh, the PM's roadmap has suggested that holidays abroad could get the go ahead from the 17th of May but it's not as simple as just booking a ticket and getting on a plane. Noah, could you tell us what international travel might look like if it goes ahead in the next couple of weeks? Yeah, thanks for having me, Chelsea. Um, it's going to look a lot different to what we're used to, you know. There's no more uh, just heading to the airport, going through security, and then, uh, as Brits do, heading for a pint at 6am before they head off to MAGA. That's all, it, it's all going to change. There's going to be a few more steps um, before that. Um, but they aren't particularly clear yet. What we do know is that should flights go ahead from May 17th, and that is a provisional should. We're set to hear more any minute now in the next few days. Uh, there's going to be a traffic light system. So destinations will be classed as either green, amber or red. There's the three lists. And depending on where you're going and which list your destination falls under, that is going to dictate what your travel looks like. Okay, so will there be a limit on where people can travel to? Will it be completely open or is there particular countries that are letting the Brits in? Yeah, so uh, as I was saying, there's the three different uh, colours in the traffic light and the lists are going to be based on the following criteria. So they're going to be based on the percentage of a country's population that have been vaccinated, the rate of infection, the prevalence of variants of concern, the country's access to reliable scientific data and genomic sequence and genomic sequencing. Now, the likes of Spain, Greece, Cyprus and Turkey have all said they want to welcome back UK travellers this summer, but based on vaccination and case data, those four countries do look likely to land on the amber list. But uh, looking strong and positive for the green list, we do have Malta, Portugal, Israel and the USA due to their high vaccination figures. 
And do we have any information about quarantine? Will people have to quarantine when they get there or when they get back? So as things stand, travellers to green countries will not need to isolate on their return, but they will need to take a COVID test. Um, uh, meanwhile, arrivals from amber countries will need to quarantine and red list countries will have the strictest rules with only UK or Irish nationals being allowed to return and they must stay in a government quarantine hotel. So it really is all about where your destination uh, falls on the list. But as I did mention earlier, there are so many details yet to be confirmed. And as travel co correspondent, my eyes are peeled. <laughs> okay, thank you for that, Noah. Um, surprisingly, it seems that residents in Bradford aren't too keen on the idea of going abroad just yet. Our reporter Martha Sanders was walking the streets of Bradford and found out from some today. No, no, too much upset. Now I'm by myself. So we'd rather stay over this side until everything's definitely gone. Probably not this year, no. Probably for the same reasons as her, to be honest. Covid is still not 100% out of the park yet. Well, I hope so, because me and the wife go to Tunisia five or six times a year. But at the moment, there's a block on there. So we either go to Tunisia or Morocco. Next Tuesday marks the 36th anniversary of the Valley Parade fire, which led to the death of 56 supporters, as well as injuring over 250 others. The legacy of the fire can be seen through the community and club efforts to support the Bradford Burns Unit, which was established in the aftermath of the fire. Christian Oldcorn is a Bradford City supporter who was at the game on the day of the fire and believes that the fire played an important role in establishing the link between the club and the communities within the city. It's, it's incredible because there's, there's a couple of things. There's been um, a project um, which was led by the club's community team a few years ago and it was around, if, if, I mean, if you, the timing, 985 was incredibly different life to what we live now. You know, no one had seen a mobile phone, the internet didn't exist. Um, so you had all these people in a stadium where national TV was putting live footage out of a disaster where people had been killed. And the only means that people had to contact home for, in a lot of cases were pay phones. And also, um, the houses around the area of Valley Prince, it's a, it's a built-up area. It's, it's rows after rows of terrace houses. And the local community were mainly South Asian people from uh, of Pakistani and Bangladeshi origin. They literally opened their doors, got the kettles on, went out to people, enabled them to use their phones. There were people queuing out of homes, just making those phone calls home to tell the families they were safe. And, and that's something that that link between the community and the club it, it, it'll always be there. And there's also the um, Bradford University Burns Unit. Um, obviously, we've all, most of the people who were injured were severely burned and they were taken to hospitals in Bradford. And the people at, at, at the two main Bradford hospitals gained an expertise of dealing with certain types of burns, which has, has led to the, the big legacy of, of, of the positive, really, of, of what has happened is the Burns Unit. It's, it's world renowned, it's got a worldwide reputation for plastic surgery and burns and each year the big focus from most of the fans is on you know is on raising funds for that and that's the memorial that keeps on going um and i know there's a lot of people who do lots of different things to support the burns union and the club do um, i mean for last saturday's game there was a virtual ticket where people could buy a buy a game ticket to not go to the game but the entire proceeds would go to the burns union significant positives that we wish had never been needed to come from the day for a community like ours it, it, it needed a, a disaster like the the, the the fire to really make people appreciate the, the place of the club in the community 
Time for sports now. More than more than two weeks after the controversial announcement of the establishment of a European Super League, effects and reactions, especially among the fan base, are still tangible today. We've seen all the scenes taking place at Old Trafford on Sunday afternoon that led to the postponement of Manchester United versus Liverpool. Starting from July and for all the following seasons, three Chelsea supporters will be able to attend societal board meetings and act as a spokesperson for the entire fan base. Joe Urka, football writer at the Yorkshire Evening Post, has discussed the significance of this news with our reporter Ricardo Trono. I definitely think there has to be some form of, of fan representation. Um, I know Leeds United in particular, just because I, I cover the club, they consult the supporters trust on sort of like a monthly basis. They hold a meeting with the supporters club every every month. Angus Kinnear in particular um, leads that, and and that's that's something that needs to become a regular thing. I think across the board because. As we've seen, the European Super Clubs were so out of touch with their fan base. Liverpool, you know, Arsenal, everyone in particular, in particular Liverpool, um, it goes completely against the, the values of that football club. It shows you how out of touch the owners were with the fan base, and, and I don't think they anticipated the feeling that this would have provoked by doing the Super League. So, I think there has to be some element of consultation. You'd have thought that it would have been there before, but I think if it's mandatory, it can only be a good thing. So this kind of thing doesn't happen happen again. Um, I think fans need to be heard. They need to be their voices need to be sort of heard at an ownership level. Um, whether they like that or not, I, I presume not, because a lot of these billionaires get their own way and like to get their own way. But fans are fundamentally what you know run, runs a football club. Directors, owners, they all sign checks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That that Bill Shankly famous quote. But fans, players, manager, they are the team. And fans in particular are there throughout their whole life. It's not often, you know, you see people flip-flopping between between clubs. So they are the lifeblood of, of the teams. They are the lifeblood of the club. They're the ones that are paying their money to support their team. Um, as Marcelo Bielsa says, all they ask for in return is, is emotion and feeling from the game. You know, they, they pay £50 or whatever it is these days to go watch a Premier League game and all they get in return is, is a feeling after a win or a defeat. So... Yeah, fans need to be heard. They need to be consulted, and hopefully, um, you know, Chelsea starting that step can can lead to more clubs in the Premier League and across Europe doing so. Because fans have to be heard. They can't they can't be left in the dark. And this is this is what we've seen from the fallout of the Super League is that fans are very angry about it um, because their feelings weren't heard, and their most important thing in football. Uh, the Premier League has confirmed that the final two rounds of fixtures this season will take place in front of a limited number of home fans only. Games have been rescheduled to allow each club to host one match with supporters before the end of the campaign. Crowds will be allowed to return to stadiums as part of the government's easing of coronavirus restrictions on May the 17th. And now for the weather. We should be seeing showers die. Showers dying away into the evening, but we're set for a chilly night with temperatures that could go as low as minus four degrees Celsius. And that's all from Newscast for today. We'll see you again at 1pm tomorrow with the latest across Yorkshire.